0: And neither do we honor with many sacrifices and garlands of flowers such deities as men have formed and set in shrines and have called gods, since we see that these are soulless and dead and have not the form of God. For we do not consider that God has such a form as some say they in imitate to his honor. But have the names and forms of those wicked demons which have appeared. For why need we tell you who already know into what forms the craftsmen carving and cutting, casting and hammering, fashion the materials? And often out of vessels of dishonor, by merely changing the form and making an image of the requisite shape, they make what they call a god. Which we consider not only senseless, but to be even insulting to God. Who, having ineffable glory and form, thus gets his name attached to things that are corruptible and require constant service. And that the artificers of these are both intemperate and, not to enter into any particulars, are practiced in every kind of vice you very well know. Even their own girls who work along with them, they are corrupt. What infatuation that dissolute men should be said to fashion and make gods for your worship, and that you should appoint such men the guardians of the temples where they are enshrined, not recognizing that it is unlawful even to think or say that men can be the guardians of gods." That comes from a man that we refer to as Justin Martyr, a very, very, very early Christian father, whose first name is Justin, but his last name was not Martyr. He was martyred by Rome for being a Christian. Prior to his martyrdom, he wrote a series of letters that we refer to as his apologies, and we don't mean that in like uh, I'm sorry, kind of an apology, but where we get our word apologetics. He wrote these letters of defense, defending the faith defending the Christian faith against the Roman Empire because at the time, Rome was very suspicious of Christianity. They considered it this very weird Jewish cult that started, and there was a lot of rumors going on about what Christians believed and what they were doing, and most of these rumors were false. And so Justin, one of the leaders of the church at the time, very educated, former philosopher, decided to write to Rome expressing what the Christians actually believed and how they actually behaved. And one of his many paragraphs that we just read examined and took a shot at the absurdity of the Roman pantheon of gods. You see, Rome had many gods that they worshipped, and they had a temple where these gods were said to dwell. And so they created statues and idols of these gods and put them in the temple. And then they attached God to these idols, and so they essentially treated these idols as if they were the gods they represented. They engaged in idolatry and idol worship. And Justin wrote to remind them how silly that is. And how the Christians in the first, second, third, and fourth century knew how silly that was. But what's so fascinating for us today as we continue in our sermon series through 1 Samuel. You recall what happened in the events last week? Israel has been judged by God. The ark of God has been captured. And as we now see what goes on in Philistia, what goes on among the Philistines now that they have possession of the ark, we find out that the silliness of idolatry goes well beyond Rome. That God's people have always known the silliness of polytheistic idolatry. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 5. 1 Samuel chapter 5. This week we're going to preach a very small portion. Next Sunday we're going to preach a much longer portion as God is going to show two sides of himself as the ark has been captured. God has allowed the ark to be removed from Israel so that he could reveal two primary things about himself. Next week we're going to see the severity of God. God is going to use this circumstance as an opportunity to showcase how severe he can be. But this week we're going to look at a different S word, the supremacy of God. And so we are going to read just verses 1 through 5. If you would follow along with me in your Bibles, for these are the very words of God. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Thus saith the Lord, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The Ark was a trophy, for the Philistines. They have just gone into Israel and they have captured in their minds, we saw this last week, Israel's God. They assumed that Israel was polytheistic like them. And they assumed that Israel were idol worshippers just like them. And so they saw the ark as Israel's idol God. Now we know that's not the case. When the ark was commissioned, there were images on it of the angels. But the ark was never commissioned to be an image of God. The people who created that Ark had a very clear Ten Commandments which were inside of that Ark which said not to make any images of God. So the Ark, do not mistake it for an idol. This was not an idol. This was a symbolic seat for the presence of God. But the Philistines imposed their worldview onto Israel and said, they're polytheistic, this is one of their gods, we have captured their God. So what do they do? Like an insulting trophy, they bring it into the temple and they set it beside their big primary God. Dagon was worshiped for centuries in this area, and even though these people groups had many gods, Dagon seemed to be uh, the leader. You, you'll notice, even in polytheistic religions, you still have one god who's sort of above the rest, right? Zeus. He's one of many gods, but Zeus was kind of the head honcho. Dagon was their head honcho, and, and this was made sense. Dagon was the god of fertility and agriculture, and back then, those were the most important things in a person's life. We need to Grow our people, we need offspring, we need to grow our people, or we're gonna die off, and we need food. We need the rain, we need so the gods of agriculture and fertility in almost every pagan culture are almost always supreme. Because those were the most important things. So they bring the ark into this temple of gods, and they set him beside they set the ark beside this primary god. And we know he's primary because it's referred to his temple. This is Dagon's temple. And so, uh, Yahweh's Ark has now been brought into and set among the gods. And we see this in verses 1 through 2. The Philistines captured the Ark of God. They brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. So here we have this picture as if Yahweh is sort of one of the gods. A God now among the gods. But Yahweh is going to do something to dissuade us from that notion. He's going to do something to remind us today, but specifically the Philistines then and the people of Israel then, that he does not belong in a pantheon. That he is not merely a God among gods. He is the one true God. How does he prove this? Well, look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. So God, symbolically and miraculously, makes their God worship him. He takes their God and he bows him down before the seat that God sits on. In a symbolic gesture of They thought they brought the ark to humiliate Yahweh, but now Yahweh has put it in a situation to humiliate them. Whose God is worshiping who now? But obviously, you know, the Philistines, as bizarre as this sounds, you know, you could contrive of a situation of maybe this was coincidence. Maybe just a strong breeze blew into the temple and it just so happened to blow over our really big statue idol god and he just... Happen to roll face forward in front of the ark. You know, so maybe it's just coincidence. So what do they do? They They pick Dagon up and they put him back in his place. And what's interesting in my studies this week is almost every Hebrew scholar that I read, that phrase at the very end of verse 3, so they took Dagon and put him back in his place, they almost all made mention of how in the Hebrew, this was... The the language and the words used, this was kind of a a cheeky idiom or an insult, if you will. In other words, the author, we don't don't catch it in the English, but in the Hebrew, the author was making a very clear point to say, Look at how silly this is. They have a God who is in need of their assistance. Dagon has fallen, and what does Dagon need? He needs his servants to pick him up and put him back. What a helpless, pitiful, embarrassing God. And so I want us to stop and just do a quick but very important, very related rabbit trail for a moment. And I want us to just praise God. Aren't you thankful? that Christianity is not, and never has been, a religion of idols? Aren't you so thankful that God has not called us to such futility? Because what you'll find is that idolist worship is extremely rare throughout all of world history. Almost every pagan nation, any people discovered new land and went into those territories, the indigenous people there were always religious worshiping people. Why? Romans chapter one, God has revealed himself through nature. Everyone knows God exists. There's no such thing as an atheist. They all know God exists, but what does Romans one say? They suppress the truth of God, exchange it for a lie, and worship the created beings rather than the creator. So everywhere we've gone, we go into a place and we see people worship but what are they worshiping? Lizards and sun and moon. And they make idols every time. It's uncanny. They have idols and they bow down to these idols. And the people of the Philistines, these were idol worshipers. The people that were already in this land that Israel purged from the land were all idol worshipers. People love their idols. There's an unfortunate reality that even in the history of the Christian church, we have different traditions trying their hardest to bring idols into the church. You ever visit an Eastern Orthodox church? Now, they actually had a council that banned idols, but they love images. They've got their images. What are you supposed to do? you ever been to one? The second you walk into an Eastern Orthodox church, what are you supposed to do? There's a picture of a saint, and you're supposed to bow down and kiss it. It happens in every Eastern Orthodox church every Sunday. You bow down and you kiss these saints. You ever, you ever been involved? You grew up in Roman Catholicism? Have you ever been in a scenario where you've had to bow down before a statue of Mary? Robed in, in, in flowers and garlands, incense in front of it. The candles are burning and you're praying. Even in the Christian tradition, people have tried to drag idol worship into it. But you will find from Old Testament to New, God never has any place for bowing down to idols, kissing them, praying to them, putting flowers on them. This has never been the case for God's people. And we need to be, we you need to hear me on this, we need to be thankful. Aren't you so glad that we don't have to pick our God up off the floor and put him back in its place? Aren't you so glad, like Justin Martyr said, we don't have to commission pagan wood craftsmen to create our gods for us? The Christian church has never been a place for idols and it never will be. We don't need them. Justin knew they were foolish and they were silly. And the people of God, Israel knew they were foolish and they were silly. Samuel knew they're foolish, they're silly. You have never had to pick my God up and put him back in his place you want to know who uh, it wasn't just the people of God having to confront the Philistines with this Paul the apostle, Paul himself had a beautiful opportunity to confront Rome on the silliness of idols, keep your marker here we're going to finish the text but this is really important turn to Acts chapter 17 Acts chapter 17, this is is one of the most beautiful narratives we have in the New Testament, if I can say such a thing. Because what happened is Paul has gone to Athens, and he was not actually supposed to even do ministry there. He was supposed to wait there for his companions so that they could go off and do ministry elsewhere. But the text tells us that while Paul is in Athens, he noticed all of their idols, He saw the idols all over the city and he saw the temple of the idols and it grieved him so much. He was so grieved by the idolatry that he said, listen, I know this was not on the agenda but you guys just got to wait. I got to do some preaching. I got to do some gospel preaching here. His heart is grieved and moved and he goes in to preach and address these idols. Look with me beginning at verse 16. We're going to read a long portion, but we won't do a lot of commentary on this. Just just hear the narrative. Just hear Paul's perspective on idols. Now, while Paul was with them or was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have even said, for we indeed are his offspring being then God's offspring we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man the times of ignorance God overlooked but he now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has anointed and he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead what's Paul's point number one God does not live in temples and idols. He made the world. He's above it. He's everywhere. Number two, God does not need to be served or helped by us. It's the exact opposite. We need to be served and helped by him. And number three, if God is not to be found in the idols, if he's not to be found in the temple, where is God to be found? And what does Paul say? He's not far from any one of us. If you want God, you don't need to go to a temple. If you want God, you don't need to go to a shrine. You don't need to go to an idol. You don't need to go to a special place of worship. If you want God, you turn and you repent to Him right now because He's here and He's among us. Paul, long before Justin, knew the folly of idolatry. In other words, let me just be very blunt about it. Idols are stupid. They're stupid. Psalm 135, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but they do not speak. They have eyes but they do not see. They have ears but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them and so do all who trust in them. Idol worship corrupts us. So I just want to remind us, aren't you thankful of the second commandment? Aren't you thankful that we have never been commissioned to have graven images? What a blessing to our religion. But let's go back and see what God does now with Dagon. Back to 1 Samuel chapter 5. Verse 4. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward. On the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, in both his hands, were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. That threshold to that temple was never crossed again because the Philistines, God, God made sure to correct them the second time around. This was no breeze, this was no accident. This was God humiliating their God. You see, the battle that took place last week could easily be interpreted as not as God versus Dagon. That was Philistia versus Israel. But what has God orchestrated now? Now we're in the temple and there's no armies. There's no battle. There's no Roman. Now it is Yahweh versus Dagon. And we have a clear and decisive winner. For not only is Dagon bowing before Yahweh again, he's been decapitated and delimbed this time. God made a mockery of their God. By the way, this was always Yahweh's disposition towards the idols of the nations. It was not merely a very peaceful, listen guys, just, just, I know that they have their idols, but just you're not supposed to do that. He had a disposition of humiliate those things. Deuteronomy chapter 12, this was the people's commission as they went into the, to Canaan. You don't have to turn there, just hear this. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place." God is not interested in just merely avoiding idol worship. We are total iconoclasts. Destroy the idols. Cut their heads off. That was God's disposition. Why the intensity? Right, well, why did God make a showing like this? Because he wanted us to see the central thesis of these five verses is something so important for us. God wanted to prove To both his enemies and to his people. Because we're going to see either next week or the week before that Israel, we've been mentioning how they've been corrupted. Israel has actually been engaged in polytheistic worship. They have brought in some of the gods of the Philistines and been worshiping them alongside Yahweh. So God has a lesson to teach, not just to the enemies of the people of God, but to the people of God themselves. And this lesson that he's trying to teach them is this, his own supremacy The thesis of verses 1 through 5 is this, the supremacy of God. That He alone is God. There is none other, there is none like Him. He is above all, He is over all, and He does not belong in a pantheon. He has no colleagues, He has no peers. He alone is God. And He knows not of any other, and He made sure to prove it. That the Philistines brought him among what they perceived as gods. They brought him among all their gods. And he made sure to show an example that he is above them. This was a reminder of the exclusivity of our religion. It's interesting. uh, Sometimes I, I, I fear that too many people in America think the exclusivity of Christianity is something new. Right. Christians are known, part of the reason why we are so disliked is because we have a very intolerant religion. You know that, right? Our religion is very intolerant. Your gods are not welcome in our religion. They're not. Christians don't have coexist bumper stickers on their cars. Now, obviously we do coexist with people, but we know what those bumper stickers really mean. They don't really mean, hey, don't burn your neighbor's house down. What they mean is that all religions are equal. And Christianity responds with a proud, unashamed, unembarrassed, absolutely not. There is one God. Repent. We have a very exclusive religion because we believe in an exclusive God. There is none like Him. And so my fear is that people think this is a Western thing. This is, this is an American thing, those, those, those intolerant American Christians. You know, they're just so uptight and fundamentalist. And so maybe it's just an American thing. Well, no, it's not just an American thing. Well, maybe it's just a, 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 a Western thing, right? This is just Western religion. Western religions are so intolerant. You look at the religions of the Eastern world, they're much more inclusive, much more tolerant. You know, this must just be a Western thing. Nope, not Western either. Why? Because First Samuel 5 not only predates America, it predates the entire foundation of the western-eastern thought process in the world. This is before west versus east. This is before the United States of America. And what do we have? We have God emphatically declaring in his Old Testament constantly, I alone am God. There is none other. The exclusivity of our religion is not an American thing. It's a Ten Commandments thing. What's the first commandment? By the way, after they were taken out of polytheistic Egypt, after they had been taught to worship Egypt's gods and bow down to their idols, they're driven from Egypt, they're saved from Egypt, and God communes with them and he covenants with them, and what are the first two things he tells them? You shall have no other gods, commandment number one. Commandment number two, make no images. This is not fundamentalist Americans. This is the truth revealed through Yahweh. There is one God. He is above all the rest. The others are but idols. And you shall make no graven images. You worship in spirit and truth. Let the world pick their idols up off the ground. And attend to them with constant care. You worship in spirit and truth. This is not an American thing. This is not a western thing. This is a bible thing. The gods of the nations are idols. They're deaf, dumb, and blind. We worship the ever-exalting one. And by the way, the New Testament not only does not back off on this theme, it pushes the antithesis even harder. And how does the New Testament push this antithesis so much harder? By the revealing of the person, of the second person of the Trinity, God in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes on the scene in, this, in, in the New Testament and he does nothing but taste this, take this exclusive religion and he pushes this antithesis even harder. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Listen to Paul's account of who Jesus revealed himself to be. In your New Testament's Colossians... Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Get everyone popcorn. That's how I learned that. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the preeminent one. What does it mean to be preeminent? It means to be above all things. There's nothing higher. Again, no colleagues, no peers. He is above all things. He is the one who not only created everything, but why was it created? What does the text say is the purpose of creation? Who's it for? It's for him. Everything that exists is for Jesus. It belongs to Jesus. He's the preeminent one. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. So again, this is not just intolerant American fundamentalism. This is Jesus. You want to be saved? You need Christ. Without Christ, there is no hope for salvation for you. Your gods are not welcome here. Your gods need to be decapitated, beheaded, and laid on the threshold floor, bowing down to Jesus Christ. That's where your gods belong. Perhaps it's, it's said nowhere better. Turn back just one book to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. This is known as the Carmen Christi. Which means a hymn to Christ. Scholars believe that this, what Paul quotes here, was actually an early church hymn. This was a song that the early church sang. And Paul quotes this to make his point clear, his point exalting the work of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, let's read, well let's read the the whole hymn. Look with me at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, he just talked about humility, have this humble mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there we have our gospel, there we have the person and work and redemption of Christ, and what are the consequences of this great redemption? Verse nine. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the God we serve. Every knee shall bow. Dagon will bow. The Philistines will bow. We will either bow willingly or we will be forced to bow in defeat. But every knee will recognize the preeminent supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an exclusive, exclusive religion. And it always has been. That Yahweh alone is God and that Jesus Christ is the preeminent one and that there is no way to the Father but through Jesus For at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. This is why we must come to him as fully God in order to properly honor and serve the one true God. How is it that we worship the one true God? In Christ. You don't need idols. You don't need polytheistic gods to help you. You don't need other meteors. You come to Christ. And outside of Christ, there is no salvation. Outside of Christ, there is no truth. For when Pilate asked Jesus what is true, he was talking to truth itself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So be proud of your exclusive religion. Be proud of its historical lineage, that it is not a modern or novel thing, but that the people of God have always recognized, and First Samuel 5 reminds us of, we serve the one true and living God. There is none like him. He is above all and before all. I would like to conclude. I began with Justin. Let me conclude with Justin. He also says this. Uh, actually, by the way, I'm sorry. Let me say one more thing. It's very important. Uh, the, the reason this, this, is so, this matters, I, I'm assuming, let me just assume. I don't, I don't know. Some of you, I don't know your background. I don't know what you grew up listening to. But if you grew up a Christian, this is probably not a new message. I hope so. If you grew up a Christian and you've never heard before in the exclusivity of Jesus Christ then I, I, I pity whoever claimed to be a Christian in your life. I'm assuming to many of you this is not a new teaching. To gl- glory be to God. But here is what we do need to be reminded of even if this is something you've, you, you are well established in. It is not your love for Jesus that offends the world. It is not your love for Jesus that makes the world dislike you. It is your exclusive love for Jesus that offends the world. It is your exclusive love for Jesus that makes the world dislike you. Uh, you know, we're, we've been, I've been quoting Justin here. You want to know why Justin died? You want to know why Rome killed him? It was not because he believed Jesus was God. They didn't care about that. Read Acts 17. The Romans, remember what did Acts 17 say? They had a statue to whom the unknown God you know what that means? The Romans realized, you know what, there's so many gods, we probably don't even know all of them, and what if we make a statue, or what if, what if there's a god in heaven, and we don't make a statue for him? What is he going to do to us? So let's just make a, a generic one to, uh, to represent all the gods we don't even know. And Paul mocks that. Paul says, okay, what you guys clearly, you don't even know who you're worshiping, so let me tell you. Paul makes fun of that. But the point is, is, Rome had room for lots of gods. Jesus wanted to be a god in Rome, go ahead. They had no problem with that. You want to know what they had a problem with? It wasn't that they believed Jesus was Lord, it was that they believed Jesus is Lord of all. They didn't just tell Rome Jesus is God, they told Rome Jesus is the one true God, your gods are false, you need to repent, abandon them and come and worship Christ. They wanted to add Jesus to the pantheon, and the Christian says Jesus is a preeminent above the pantheon. It was not his love for Jesus that got him killed; it was his exclusive love for Jesus. He refused to give Caesar the belief that Caesar is Lord, and they had to pay. They had to pay homage to that, and the Christians said no, because they knew what they were being asked to do is to make Caesar and Jesus colleagues and they said Jesus is the preeminent one that's why he died the world is not upset with you for making room for Christ the world is upset with you because you won't make room for anyone else and that's where the pressure is going to come in you can worship Jesus all you want so long as you're just tolerant to all of their ideas what we are witnessing I would argue what we are witnessing before us right now and even in our own day is, like Rome, a state aspiring to deity. And the state will not be happy when you remind them they have an authority above them. Because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That includes the United States government. He's preeminent over that too. Over China, over Africa, he is the all-exalted preeminent one. That is what will get you in trouble. You can love Jesus all day long, but it's when you say he's my God and he's yours too. That's when you get in trouble. But it is the message of Christianity. And it is the message of scripture and it always has been and it's glorious. And that's why Justin concluded this way. We who out of every race of men used to worship your many gods have now through Jesus Christ learned to despise them even though we are threatened with death for it. And we have dedicated ourselves to the unbegotten God, of whom we are persuaded that never was he goaded by lust. Never did he have need to be rescued. Never was he anxious and made mistakes, as all of your gods have done. No, those who believe such things we pity. And those who invented such things we know to be devils.